0: Alexander Lawrence Ames, and this is Cloister Talk, the Pennsylvania German Material Texts Podcast. Welcome to Episode 20, Cloister Talk Live at the Rosenbach, The Other Pennsylvania Germans, a conversation on early Southeastern Pennsylvania's Jewish community with Judith M. Gustin. In this episode, we will talk about early America's fascinating Jewish history with an expert in the field who also oversees a remarkable collection of books manuscripts, and fine and decorative art connected with early American Jewish heritage. Getting a better understanding of the Jewish presence in early Pennsylvania will help us think about the context in which the Pennsylvania Germans lived, and the place of ethnic, religious, and cultural diversity in the Mid-Atlantic region. This podcast series explores topics covered in my new book, The Word in the Wilderness, Popular Piety and the Manuscript Arts in Early Pennsylvania, published by the Pennsylvania State University Press in 2020. There are many questions and ideas I address in the book that deserve further consideration, so each episode of Cloister Talk dives into one of those topics. During many episodes in the third season of Cloister Talk, we are visiting the various libraries and museums that made publication of The Word in the Wilderness possible. If you'd like to learn more about anything discussed on the podcast, please read the book, which you can order from psupress.org or request from your favorite local bookseller or library. The streets of Philadelphia are lined with charming row homes, and the various tree-lined byways in the Rittenhouse neighborhood of the city are particularly bucolic and idyllic. On the 2000 block of Delancey Place in Philadelphia sits one of the most important historic sites in the history of American book collecting, the Rosenbach, an historic house museum and special collections library with no fewer than 400,000 individual historical artifacts. Established by the fine art, rare book, and manuscript-dealing brothers Philip and Dr. A.S.W. Rosenbach in 1954, today the two historic homes that comprise the Rosenbach welcome scholars and visitors from around the world for unique experiences grounded in the institution's magnificent collections. The Rosenbach also happens to be my place of employment, and something that never ceases to amaze me is the incredible diversity of stories the collection tells. The Rosenbachs themselves were prominent members of Philadelphia's Jewish community, so it is unsurprising that the vast span of the American Jewish experience is represented in the collection as well. These holdings offer a useful reminder to those of us interested in Pennsylvania's German Protestant history that the religious vibrancy of the early colony-turned-state was by no means limited to Christianity. I am honored to introduce as our guest on Cloister Talk today, the Rosenbach's Curator and Director of Collections, Judith M. Gustin, the person best equipped to help us dive into the history of the Rosenbach's collections related to early American religious and cultural history. Judy Gustin graduated from Smith College with an A.B. in Classical Languages and Literatures and from Yale University with an M.A. in Classics. She earned a Master's in American Material Culture from the Winter Tour program of the University of Delaware, for which her research focused on material expressions of Jewish identity in early America. At the Rosenbach, Judy works with a wide range of collections, from the museum's single historic Japanese manuscript to its significant American historical collections. She has also worked extensively with the Judaica collections in exhibitions, programs, and through conservation projects and significant acquisitions. When not working, Judy enjoys travel, particularly to visit family in the southwest United States, where she is an avid hiker. At home, she keeps busy with ongoing improvements to her historic Center City, Philadelphia home. Thank you, Judy, for joining me today on Cloister Talk.
1: Thanks, Alex. It's really great to be with you today.
0: For listeners who may be unfamiliar with the Rosenbach, tell us a bit more about the institution and the kinds of collections that it holds.
1: Well, the Rosenbach is both a research library and a museum that offers tours, exhibitions, and programs based on its collections. Of course, during the current health crisis, we have shifted some of our programming to the digital platform and are limiting on-site visitation in conjunction with the appropriate state and city regulations. Listeners who are interested in visiting should use our website as a guide to availability of tickets and activities. The Rosenbach's collection was created from our founders' collections, but has grown by about a third since the museum's founding in 1954. Accordingly, it's struct- it is structured along their key interests on the book and manuscript side, the literature of the British Isles, American history, smaller pockets of continental literature, Judaica, and American literature, among other things. On the decorative and fine arts side, British and American furniture and a broader mix of silver and other metalwork, ceramics, textiles, jewelry, and vertu, as well as paintings, drawings, prints, and portrait miniatures. The collections we are most known for are modernist poet Marianne Moore's Papers and Her Living Room, which is installed in the period house, James Joyce's Manuscript for Ulysses and the materials surrounding the creation of that work, works by Lewis Carroll, Bram Stoker's Dracula, are significant early American collections from the Spanish exploration to the Civil War.
0: Please say more about the Judaica collection and early Jewish-American holdings in particular.
1: Sure. Um, Judaica at the Rosenbach has its origins in a number of different sources. One group of materials is called Rosenbachiana, or Judaic holdings that belong to the founders or their families, The Rosenbach Company Archive, which is a larger section of our holdings, includes Dr. ASW Rosenbach's correspondence related to the many Jewish philanthropic, social, and religious organizations he belonged to or led during his lifetime. Hebrew incunabula, with the term incunabula meaning from the cradle or the earliest printed books is also a larger group of works, which also contains the very first printed Hebrew books. For our collection, that means nine highly significant 15th century works of religion and religious commentary, philosophy, and literature. Also Continental Judaica, which are printed and manuscript religious works. And then early American Judaica, Dr. Rosenbach was a scholar in this area and published a bibliography of works from the first book printed in what's now the United States all the way up to the Civil War. This collection included books by and about American Jews published in America and also elsewhere. The majority of books in this significant collection— was donated to the American Jewish Historical Society during his lifetime, but we still retain some important works from this collection today. And last but not least, a large collection across media representing the Gratz family, a Jewish family in colonial Philadelphia that was related to the Rosenbach family by marriage.
0: Judy, the title of this episode of Cloister Talk is intentionally provocative. Is it fair to call early Jewish residents of Pennsylvania the other Pennsylvania Germans? Did they generally have German ancestry?
1: Well, Alex, that's an interesting question that you ask, and the answer could be quite long. Uh, I'll try to be as brief as possible. Although some scholars refer to these early immigrants as German Jews, I think that may be shorthand for the general area from which they came— We really have to consider the history of Jews in Europe over centuries to answer this question. By the time we get to the Gratz family um, that we know from the Rosenbach's collections in the 18th century, Jews had experienced expulsion from Europe's nation-states for over five centuries. But throughout the larger time period, Jews were, with only a few exceptions of time and place, almost never allowed to integrate into the societies where they settled, not allowed to work the full array of employment, not allowed full access to social or political rights or personal freedoms. For the most part, they remained isolated in their own communities, developing distinct cultures, creating the Yiddish language, um, which was essentially a Jewish lingua franca, which despite having derived from medieval German and Hebrew, among other components, may have originated to modernize biblical Hebrew by inserting current functional terms from the surrounding cultures. So these early Jews in Pennsylvania spoke Yiddish as their primary language and were not culturally German really at
0: all. The early Jewish American family best represented in the Rosenbachs collection is the Gratz family, uh, as you already described. Tell us a bit more about the Gratzes and their significance to American history.
1: So, Michael Gratz came from Langendorf upper, upper Silesia, following his older brother Bernard through London Studying the merchant trade with cousins there, his early apprenticeship was rather involved, including sailing to India when he was about 14. He followed Bernard to Philadelphia, arriving in 1759 when he was just 19 years old. Beginning with trade on the frontier, he and Bernard began a merchant business in dry goods that grew into coastal trade as far as the Caribbean. With the non-importation agreements, which they signed, leading up to the Revolution, their business turned towards interior land acquisition. Michael contributed financially and materially to support the American troops and converted his ship for blockade running and also supplied goods to cities occupied by British troops by hauling supplies overland. He and his wife, Miriam Simon, the daughter of another prosperous merchant, had 10 children who survived into adulthood, Many of them became great philanthropists in Philadelphia, founding its lasting institutions of art, culture, religion, education, and charitable work, most notably Rebecca Gratz, who founded several charities for women and children in need, but also began the Hebrew Sunday School movement, believing that learning Hebrew was essential to the survival of Judaism.
0: The Rosenbach's collections, connected to the Graz's and their world, is vast and diverse, consisting of oil-on-canvas portraits, handwritten letters, printed books, handmade furniture, silver pieces, and so much more. How do you, as an historian and a curator, piece together the story of this family and their time by means of this assorted evidence?
1: Well, it's important first to know that the Rosenbach is not the only home of Gratz material. There are other repositories, particularly of manuscript material, that help us understand their lives and work. Some of my work has been trying to understand how some of these objects came into our collection and trying to make connections between and among them and to other objects in our collections in order to place the Gratzes in their context for our visitors. For our collection, and for any collection, it's important to ask good questions as you look at these objects and only to ask what you can actually learn from them. The struggle to ask these questions is part of the material approach, not just what does this object tell us, but where do we need to make connections?
0: Judy, is there a fundamental problem with taking a material culture-focused approach to the Abrahamic faiths, which are so centered uh, on the invisible work of the Spirit? What does it mean to use a material culture objects-based approach to the study of interior religious experiences?
1: When I did my research, I found that there was a striving to look for Jewishness in objects, as if objects themselves would convey the identity of their owners. When this question went unanswered in the collections of ordinary decorative objects owned by early American Jews, the assumption was usually that they were assimilating to the broader American culture rather than maintaining their Jewishness. I thought that perhaps the question was just... Uh, just wasn't focused in the right place. When we talk about expressions of faith, the impact of that faith on material objects, we need to ask ourselves what key ideas are important to people of the faith we're looking at. What are the central tenets of belief, of their spiritual or cultural experience, of their religious practice, and how might we find these core values expressed in a physical medium? Granted, it's much more difficult to know what you're looking for than to recognize it when you have found it. But if you know you're looking for it, it hits you like a ton of bricks when you actually see it.
0: I know one Gratz family artifact holds special significance to you, the Michael Gratz almanac. Please tell us about your relationship with this particular artifact and how you unlocked Jewish history from it.
1: So yes, um, the Rosenbach has in its collections actually three pocket almanacs that belong to Michael Gratz, who we spoke about earlier. I wrote my winter tour master's thesis about two of these almanacs. I actually didn't find the third until I came to work at the Rosenbach, um, and actually the, the uh, thesis was called "The Almanacs of Michael Gratz: Time, Community, and Jewish Identity in 18th century Philadelphia. I had done a survey of pocket almanacs in the Winterthur Library well before starting my thesis project, simply because I was starting to think about specializing in rare books and manuscripts, and was fascinated by these early diminutive calendars. It was so serendipitous that a later class in early American religion set me on a collision course with a thesis subject that combined my love of almanacs with my research for an artifact that could be expressive of an individual sense of his Jewish identity around the time of the American Revolution. The almanac I found on a visit to the Rosenbach, while actually looking at an exhibition on Rebecca Gratz, but then asking the librarian what other Gratz objects there were in the collection, was a pocket almanac belonging to Michael Gratz for the year 1777. This object is about two inches wide by three inches high, so it's really quite small. It has a single stitch through the center fold that holds the pages together. When I saw this almanac for the first time, I just had chills. I opened it up only to find the sloppy scroll of annotations that were typical for an owner of an almanac on the blank interleaf page opposite the printed calendar page. But when I continued to turn, there it was, the first page of neatly inscribed, perfect Hebrew forming a calendar, the Jewish Sabbaths, monthly new moons, holidays marking their beginning at sunset, and even in this particular year, the peculiarities and celebrations caused by a leap year. This took my breath away, and it took a year to connect all the dots to write a thesis on it, and I've been considering its implications ever since. The main takeaways here are these. The Jewish calendar has always been critical to preserving the Jewish people across time and geography. This almanac, which seems to be the sole survivor of its type, although there's evidence that I show to believe that the Graz's created these calendars at least somewhat regularly, shows that Michael Graz, who inscribed his Hebrew calendar opposite the secular calendar in this almanac, was experiencing a Jewish life that was what I term porous. His Jewishness and his Americanness operated simultaneously. And what we find by studying this almanac is that the tension between his Jewish calendar and his secular calendar had behavioral impacts on his lived experience that we can see in related documents and which are played out in the surrounding community of non-Jews Who see his Jewishness expressed. We also see that the community around him is familiar with alternative calendars, so that this kind of cultural expression through time is something that they are receptive to. So, this object is what can be termed a boundary object. It's meaningful all by itself. it also communicates across populations to have meaning elsewhere. So Michael Gratz, in altering his pocket almanac, wasn't just performing for himself, but he was enforcing personal behaviors that could be observed and understood within the larger community as being expressive of his Judaism.
0: What does the early Jewish presence in Pennsylvania teach us about the American experience?
1: When Michael Gratz came to Philadelphia, the city was fairly multicultural. He was ambitious and ready to work hard to do well for himself and others. His experience and the artifactual record shows us that he wasn't always well-received. One person with whom he did business responded to him by saying essentially, I don't like you, but I need you. While statements like this are never easy to hear, It does tell us that there was a sense of interdependence here at that time. I think if there is one thing that that may have eroded over time is our sense of interdependence. Now as we face the challenges of this terrible health crisis, we can see how truly interdependent we remain even as we have these gaping fissures in our social fabric. I wonder just what it will take for some Americans to say I may not like you, but I do need you.
0: Judy, as curator and director of collections at the Rosenbach, you've spent many years stewarding the Gratz family collections. What does this particular collection mean to you personally? What do you think it means to our city, region, and nation, and what are your hopes for its future?
1: I've had the great pleasure to steward this collection and to work with the descendants of Michael Gratz in doing so. They've been, as his immediate family was, so very generous and philanthropic. I look at his portrait that hangs over the fireplace in the Rosenbach's historic parlor and think about his contributions to our revolution and the cultural life in the city of Philadelphia. He was an immigrant and a Jew. His first language wasn't English. He was a success story in his adopted country. I think about all the people, the men and women of all races, religions, ethnicities, sexual orientations who came to this country and contributed to its betterment and who took risks to defend it as he did. If we can do something with our collections, it's to show that our country truly has been enriched by its diversity.
0: Thank you, Judy, for sharing your years of research and expertise about early Jewish American history and culture with us today on Cloister Talk. Exploring this history by means of the incredible artifacts at the Rosenbach truly helps us round out our picture of diverse religious and spiritual life in early America. Listeners interested in situating the story Judy has shared with us into the context of The Word in the Wilderness should explore chapter 1 of the book, titled Heaven is My Fatherland, as well as the conclusion, titled Errand into the Wilderness, Making Meaning from Manuscripts. You'll find Rosenbach Holdings referenced throughout the book, including in chapter 1 and chapter 4, titled Incense Hill. On the next episode of Cloister Talk, we will pay a return visit to the Rosenbach and consider fascinating and incredibly rare artifacts in the collection that record the astounding religious diversity in early America broadly conceived. This episode will not be an interview, but rather my own reflections formulated in the enchanting West Library of the Rosenbach while studying religious texts from early New England, Pennsylvania, and Mexico City. If you enjoyed this podcast episode, I hope you will consider reading The Word in the Wilderness. To purchase a copy, just visit psupress.org, or you can also request it from your favorite local bookseller or library. Please note that Penn State Press is a nonprofit scholarly publisher and part of the Penn State University Libraries. Your purchase of the book supports the work of nonprofit peer-reviewed academic publishing, a vital component of the United States information landscape in the 21st century. Please also check out the new Word in the Wilderness official study guide available at wordinwilderness.com slash clubs, which can inform your reading of the book and point you in the direction of other resources for exploration. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to continuing our conversation on the next episode of Cloister Talk.